Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Darren. And my name is Darren. Oh, my name is David. Are, are you Darren this week? I'll be Darren this week. All right. All you right, can I'll continue the David. lesser role of David. When are we going to tell them that you're actually David and I'm Darren? When are we going to tell them that there's actually just one of us <laughs> who's really good at doing a Darren impression? That's why it takes three days for us to kick one of these <laughs> things out. Well, we're going to play a little more casual this week and talk about some fun things that come to mind. It's like an open line night on a radio show, except obviously we're not live. We're pre-recorded. Pre-recorded. So we've got some cool voicemails that you guys have left us and some some posts that have been posted to the podcast feedback thread over on the forum. I think there's some fun stuff to talk about, but first, we've got a little bit of news this week. Stargate News. And here are your headlines from GateWorld for February 3rd, 2009. Dr. Daniel Jackson may help to kick off the third Stargate series later this year. Michael Shanks has uh, talked with Sci-Fi Wire. He said that he was asked to appear in the Stargate Universe opener. Daniel Jackson also appeared in Stargate Atlantis's pilot episode, Rising. So it only seems fitting that one of the two characters from the original feature film return to kick off Universe. And that series premiere for Stargate Universe may be coming on October 2nd. Sanctuary's Amanda Tapping recently talked with Pop Culture Zoo and said that Sanctuary is looking at aiming for an October 9th premiere, uh, which would follow a two-hour premiere for Stargate Universe the week before, then Sanctuary and Universe air together starting on October 9th. And this makes sense to me because that's what they did last year when Sanctuary premiered. Uh, it premiered on October 3rd with a two-hour uh, and Atlantis took a break and then came back, and on October 10th, it was Atlantis and Sanctuary airing together. Gateworld Features. Our interview with Brian J. Smith is currently up on the website. Brian will play Lieutenant Matthew Scott on Stargate Universe. And in this interview, we talked extensively about all sorts of neat little topics, from wanting to buy a dog to his hometown in Texas to, oh, hey, he's an actor on Universe. Excited to get to know Brian a little bit as the years tick on. And this past week, we've also published a brand new interview with Sally Malcolm, who is the joint owner and co-founder of Fandemonium, the publisher of the Stargate SG-1 and Atlantis novels. She's also written several of the novels, including A Matter of Honor and The Cost of Honor, and also the novelization of the Atlantis pilot Rising. GateWorld's newest contributor, Sean Farrell, from Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, caught up with Sally on the phone, and they talked about the history of Fandemonium, how the company came together, which I think is a really interesting story, uh, their process in working with MGM and their future goals as a company. She also talked about being able to watch Michael Shanks perform one of her stories for the big Finnish audio novel, Gift of the Gods. Why aren't there any Stargate novels? You know, there's loads of Star Trek novels. Why are there no Stargate novels? So we thought, yeah, that's a good point. You know, we looked around and we saw that Penguin had published two or three books way back at the start of the series, which had not been that successful. 
and just literally one evening we were just hanging around the house my son at the time was about I don't know eight weeks old and you know so we were up a lot pacing about and we were thinking you know we should look into this so um really on the spare of the moment uh Tom my husband he looked he uh, looked online to find the licensing coordinator or something at MGM and just sent a fax we didn't really think anything would come of it just say we we had a, a, a history in magazine publishing at least my husband did business to business magazine publishing so we on the back of that we said you know we're interested in in publishing novels Stargate novels we honestly didn't really think we would get an answer but to our immense surprise the next day we got a call from the London branch of MGM um, asking us about it and we were like oh, okay you know what's the deal and they said well you know there's these books Penguin have got the license and we said yeah but they've not published a book for four years and there was a bit of rustling of paper and and the the, the guy in the London branch said well okay um, you know give me a business plan a short business plan and um, and we'll see what we can do with the uh, UK only license so <laughs> we went into a slight panic mode because of course we'd never done anything like this before but we thought well this is a fantastic opportunity this is a 25 minute audio interview and it's now available on the site and next week expect a brand new interview with the king of all system lords Cliff Simon from South Africa Cliff talked with Gateworld Forum moderator Tammy Farrar and me uh, before Christmas last year so we're finally getting around to uh, posting that one. This is a good interview we haven't talked with him since the DVD release of Stargate Continuum this past uh, summer mm-hmm. in 2008 so it was high time for us to get around and, and get his thoughts on this second uh, Stargate DVD movie. It's a good piece what does he think about Ball's final fate? I thought it was a very well-written script. Uh, when I first sat down and read the script, I, I liked it, except for the fact that I felt there was, there was a huge gap in the script where I wasn't, nothing was happening. Yeah, we were following the Right, team. we were following them with what's happened with them, and I felt that's where it lost momentum for me. Um, and then when I saw the movie, I felt that's where it lost momentum once again. But I loved the script, and obviously in the end I read, yeah, I die and I die and I die, but right in the end, <laughs> I love the fact that the human is now alive. The host yeah. body is alive. And that, for me, was very interesting because this is a 2,000-year-old host. Maybe he was a really evil guy. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has a lot of knowledge. And I think he has a lot of knowledge that the SG team would want to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that leaves the story open. Mm-hmm. You know, anything can happen. But I was very happy that yeah, maybe Ball is dead. We don't even know. You know, right. maybe that was the real ball. I think it was the real ball. Very lucky to work for so long, you know, and I'm very sad it's over. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it'll lead on to some other things and, yeah. you know, we'll see what happens. So look for the interview with Cliff Simon this coming week on GateWorld.net. The main discussion. So this is a main topic that I've been wanting to have on the GateWorld podcast for a long time. The main topic being no topic at all. No topic. David thinks that I'm far too stuffy and scripted and that I should just throw away the notes and throw caution to the wind and talk about whatever whatever comes up. Well, he uses too many bullet points. He has too many points of discussion. So I specifically asked for a week where we had no bullet points and no specific points of discussion. And we have one, two, three, <laughs> four, five, six, seven, eight. More bullet points nine, than ever. 10, 11, 12 bullet points. Well, that's because we we're 12. not a live show. And not all of these are voicemails that I can just play to you on the spot. So I have to actually put them here so that we can read them to people. Well, here's our first voicemail. It comes from James. My name is James, and I'm calling from Henderson, Nevada. 
and this is my first time calling into a podcast because I'm actually brand new to podcasting. I just started listening to you guys about a month ago. I'm a little interested in hearing about you guys, actually, uh, how you got started doing what you're doing, uh, how you discovered Stargate. Keep up the good work. I've really been enjoying the show, and I really enjoy the website, and uh, keep the news coming. I don't know. You know, I find it hard to talk about myself. <laughs> How do I get into this? I first found Stargate in the fall of 1998 when the show entered syndication. Uh, I was really, really impressed with the pilot. I was expecting an episode of Poltergeist the Legacy and instead got Stargate. I thought this is a really expensive Poltergeist episode. Um, <laughs> then I realized that, no, it is not Poltergeist. It is a another syndicated show. And lo and behold, I found out later on that uh, the new season was airing on Showtime, which at that time my parents were paying for, even though it was uh, full of sex and all that stuff. My, my mother would uh, come downstairs in the morning for coffee and then turn on the television um, because I had been watching Stargate SG-1 that night and saw those, these images on the screen. She's like, what channel are you watching? I'm like, no, it's not me. I just, I just like it for Stargate. So I basically skipped the entire first season of Stargate and went straight to In the Line of Duty. So I basically mm -hmm. skipped over season one almost entirely and would later catch up with it on DVD. My story is actually very similar. Sure. I started right about the same time. Uh, in the fall of 98, which was when season two had just gotten going. I remember being in college and going to the grocery store and standing in the checkout line looking at TV Guide magazine, and they had this little blurb about Richard Dean Anderson from MacGyver doing a show based on Stargate. And of course I'd seen the movie several times and loved it as a sci-fi nerd. And I really wanted to watch this show, but I was in college and there was really no practical way to get showtime. Uh, poor college student didn't have the money to pay for it. But then after I graduated the next year, I ended up moving to Chicago and getting stuck in temporary housing that my company paid for. And the, the, the apartment building there had Showtime. So hey. I found myself uh, living in a strange foreign city far away from friends and family uh, with, with nothing to do except discover Stargate. They were airing new stuff on Friday night, and then they were airing all through Saturday. They would do like Saturday all-day marathons of season one. So I watched lots of season one on Saturdays and then caught the new stuff in season two on Fridays. But yeah, there were still some episodes from season one that I don't think I saw at all until they came out on DVD. Huh. So you saw the theatrical feature. Yeah, I don't remember if I saw the movie in the theater. Honestly, I don't remember. I graduated from high school in 94, uh, and okay. I was really into Star Trek The Next Generation in high school. You must have been sitting with the cool kids in high school. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Me and my <laughs> nerd friends would go to the Holiday Inn or where, wherever the conventions were being held in Portland, Oregon, and sit outside at 8 o'clock in the morning so that we'd be the first ones in line, get the good seats to see William Shatner. I never saw Stargate in the theater. I was 11 when the movie came out. Just didn't go and see it. I had no concept that it was, that it was around. And uh, around 95, 96... The movie that really came into my periphery was The Fifth Element, but I never got around to seeing it until a couple years later. And on the rack at the movie store, I would always mix up The Fifth Element and Stargate. I remember mm -hmm. a, a picture of Kurt Russell and some other shaggy guy with a, a pyramid, and that was it. And for years and years, I always saw that VHS cassette with with Kurt Russell and that other shaggy guy in the pyramid, and I never paid it any consideration. I said to myself, that is a movie that I probably will never get around to seeing because I've been seeing the box for years and years at the video store. And I said to myself, I probably never will see this. Lo and behold, right after Children of the Gods 
aired on Saturday night. It aired as the NBC Movie of the Week on Sunday. So that was my introduction to, to Stargate, the complete backwards way of getting into the show. It took me a long time before I ever saw Children of the Gods, actually. When I mm. was getting into the show, it was this this arc from There But For The Grace Of God through politics and within the serpent's grasp and the serpent's lair. Um, that's when I got hooked on Stargate. And, and then I would catch season one reruns like Korai and Tin Man, and I don't think I saw the SG-1 pilot for probably at least a year. Jedi Master Braytac also posted on the site and wanted to know why we started doing the podcast ourselves after I put out a call last June for somebody to come along and please do a podcast for us. Uh, and you and I had had a conversation with, with another Stargate fan a couple of years ago about doing a podcast for Gate That's World correct. Because you and I were both so busy. Uh, we were both in school. You know, I had a full-time job in addition to school. You were finishing up, I think, getting ready to graduate and looking at what you were going to be doing after graduation. Well, neither of us really thought we had time to do a podcast. So in June, I put out this official call. Isn't anybody interested in doing a podcast for Gate World? And nobody responded. And I was really jazzed about the idea in June because I was listening to more podcasts and thinking, hey, we can do this. And there there really weren't any any solid Stargate podcasts out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other one out there right now is the Fifth Race podcast, which you and I are going to do a guest spot on here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I think those guys just were getting started about that time. So, yeah, it came around to July and the start of the season, and and I just decided that we ought to do it. Well, aside from the fact that no one at the time really uh, was interested in doing that, let, let's, let's, let's pull that out. Let's, let's discuss that for a moment. You and I, or you mainly, now, now me as well, because, because of you, you have always had this thing about quality control. Mm-hmm. And it took me years, it took me years to not only get into your confidence, but to allow me to post things on my own before you bottlenecking sure. it and checking it first. Yep. It took you ages to get to relinquish control. A lot of it is, is just, you know, getting to know you and getting to know the, the quality of stuff you put out. And obviously over the years, your quality level has gone up and up as you've been trained mm-hmm. uh, and, and gotten the experience. You were in, I think, early college when, when we started working together. Mm-hmm. And um, I had come from this background in college of, of having a very traditional print journalism training. So in that system, there is a process, and you have an editor, mm-hmm. and you have a copy editor, and everything gets looked at by three different people before it goes to print. Because once it goes to print, you know, you're screwed mm-hmm. if, if you let something through. Obviously, online, you can go back and fix it later. Yeah, that's kind of where my headspace is at. Well, I think it has generated this latent issue where we have contributors like the moderators, Tammy, Kiwi, uh, Denise, and all the others. I just want to give them a big shout out because I think that they do amazing work for us. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they get nearly enough credit. Yeah, they're definitely the grease that keeps the site running. Absolutely. It, It couldn't happen without them. Just couldn't. We have to lead our own lives. We can't possibly be everywhere at once doing everything moderating the forum and taking care of the omnipedia and and all the other corners of the site that we've created it's just become way too big for two men to handle yeah and i think it's fun for them it's it's great because you and i do this because we have so much fun and it's it's cool that the site is big enough now where we can can bring on other people and let them do in in a kind of an official capacity for us what they would do anyway what they really enjoy doing here's an interesting question from robert 
He writes and says, Hi guys, just wanted to say how great your podcast is. I'm currently deployed with the Air Force in Kuwait, and these podcasts make my day every time I listen to them. You said here's an interesting question from Robert. For open mic night, I have a question. How are all the... Oh, oh, I see. He He does does have a question. question. Hold on. How are all the different versions of the replicators related and which came first? There are the Ida replicators, the Milky Way replicators, and the Pegasus replicators. Who made them and which ones came first? Okay, we get a little hint of the replicators in Season three's Fair Game, when Thor indicates that the Asgard are fighting an enemy worse than the Gould, and then we finally see them in, in Nemesis at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And these are, these are the Ida replicators, and we're calling them that because they're... They're from the Asgard's territory. And then you go back a generation to Reese, where Reese originally spawned the replicators in our galaxy, or so we know. And that's in Season five's Menace. So we actually kind of go backwards through replicator history as the show goes on. We see the Asgard replicators, and then they become a problem for SG-1 and trying to prevent them from entering the Milky Way galaxy. And then we go backwards and learn that they were originally created by Reese, who was an android, and her quote-unquote father was apparently some super-advanced scientist, and when she created the replicators as toys, the result was they wiped out her whole civilization and presumably her father as well. And now we go backwards further into history, once we get to Atlantis and see, well, 10,000 years ago, when the ancients were fighting the Wraith, they created the first replicators, which eventually evolved themselves into humanoid form. It has never been expressly stated that they are the original replicators. McKay says perhaps there's a connection, but the writers themselves, I mean, Martin Garrow called them the grandfathers of the block replicators. So that's, that's the order. You have uh, mm-hmm. the Asurans, who then gave birth to Reese, who then gave birth to the block replicators. That's how it Presumably. Works. Yes. Mac Jackson asks, as fellow longtime viewers of the franchise, do you think the overall quality of the series suffered during the last two seasons of SG-1? Is there anything you can say that got better in your opinion? Do I personally think that the overall quality of the show suffered in seasons 9 and 10? No. I honestly don't feel that way. I feel that this show went in a very different direction that can be confused for the quality suffering if you don't like the subject matter. I personally am a person of faith, and I find questioning your own spiritual beliefs to be a very potent topic, especially with all the turmoil in the world today about someone forcing you at gunpoint to take on their religion or die to be very poignant. And originally, I thought that the Ori were an extremely interesting idea. I was disappointed in the fact that they continually answered the problem of the Ori with technological solutions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead of coming up with an ingenious way to circumvent them or solve the problem of the Ori by thinking things through with your wit and with your gut and with your heart, to answer the problem of the Friars with an anti-Prior device and to answer Mm. the problem of the Ori with the Ark of Truth device. And Merlin's weapon. And Merlin's weapon. To answer the problem of the ancient threat with Merlin's weapon. Just go in there and wipe them all out. These God from Machine answers really irritated me because I was so used to SG-1 through the years figuring things out with their gut. Yeah, I'm with you. I really like the concept of the Ori. Again, I'm really interested, like you are, in these sort of religious and theological questions. We take the, the issue of the Gould being false gods to the nth degree in creating the Ori, when you've got these ascended beings who basically have superpowers and and live on a higher plane of existence and are non-corporeal to a less advanced 
civilization they basically are gods so Mm -hmm. how do you go and and tell them that they're not really gods Um, that kind of question of spiritual liberation i think was a really great setup and like you i'm not necessarily as hot on how it played out just in the in the use of technology to to get rid of our enemies what they do when they set this up is they ask us as viewers how do you fight that where you can't change someone's mind by showing them any amount of evidence that you can you can't change someone's mind their belief in their god is absolute how can you expect them to change you can't now I've, I think if we if we originally thought about it long enough, we would have come with a really really clever and cool and wow why didn't I think of that explanation rather than pushing a button and solving it. I think the storyline got more interesting when Adria came along because then you have a, a face to the enemy and this is a character who was very much devoted. She was not being forced by any prior threats, mm-hmm. any, the threats of priors I should say to come around to this this religious worldview. She was totally committed and devoted to the Ori religion. And so that sort of opened up some more interesting questions, I thought. One of my favorite lines from, from that season 10 is is Vala asking her, do you believe all that? Or are you just hoping that I will? And Adria kind of recoils and says, why don't you believe me? The child version of Adria. I mm-hmm. loved that exchange. I loved the character of Adria. And overall, I thought the episodes in season 9 and 10 uh, maintained a standard of quality. I think the quality was absolutely up there. Oh yeah, I mean I'm I'm bickering about little issues, but the quality of the episodes, the quality of the story writing was continually maintained. I think it was, and it's it's a fundamental shift when we lost RDA uh, and got Ben Browder, who's a fantastic actor, but the Cameron Mitchell character never really gelled for me. I think until Continuum actually, mm-hmm. that I really became a Cameron Mitchell fan. So mm-hmm. I, you know, for that reason, I do wish that it had it had been renamed Stargate Command because it it really was in a different show in a lot of ways a different show. This is Heather from Ogden, Utah, calling with a question for Podcast Twenty Eight. I'm a longtime fan of SG One, and I really hope to one day have an SG One story in which the Stargate program is made public. I'd really like to see it happen in our SG One's own time and reality. And the situation doesn't have to be as dire as in The Road Not Taken. I mean, if, if the reveal was during a relatively peaceful time and we focused on, hey, we've made these great scientific achievements and we've acquired this great technology and we've conquered all these enemies, there wouldn't necessarily be mass hysteria. Of course, on the other hand, it might be more fun and dramatic to have the program revealed during some sort of crisis or extraordinary event, too. If Brad Wright called you and told you that he planned to make the third SG-1 movie about the Stargate program going public, and he wanted the two of you to brainstorm and pitch ideas with him, what would you pitch? I am certainly a believer, and I had this conversation with Charles Shaughnessy. I don't care how liberal you are. There are certain things which we don't need to know the answers to to live our everyday lives. I'm I'm going to assume that you've seen the movie The Forgotten, where there is an alien presence occupying our planet from above, and there is nothing we can do about it. They take us when they want to take us and do experiments on us when they want to, and there's nothing that our government can do about it because if we retaliate and we fight them, they will kill us all. Mm. Now, if that was really the case in this reality, in this right now that is happening to us, what point would that serve other than to cause panic and to disrupt our daily lives with with something even more worse than eating egg whites or, or any of the little things that we recoil in horror about nowadays that we get uh, caught up in. So reveal the Stargate program? Absolutely. That is a very optimistic and hopeful view of the future. Reveal that there are aliens out there who want to suck our life force out of us or implant snakes in our heads? 
you don't necessarily have to reveal that too. Yeah, that's a good point. The only way that I could really see it being done is is a little bit at a time. Talk about yeah. the fact that we have this technology and that we've discovered that there are other human populated planets out there. Uh, but you don't necessarily have to get into the evil life sucking monsters and Earth has come a hair's breadth from annihilation six times. Humanity unites when they realize they're not alone in the universe. What are they waiting for? <laughs> Reveal the Stargate program. Yes, you're going to have smaller nations wanting a piece of the action. And yes, you're going to have unrest in the Middle East with, with this new technology and, and what it means for their, for their beliefs and their faith and their religions. But they've been fighting since the beginning of time, and there's no reason to believe that that's going to stop. But there's a, there's a chance that the, the Stargate program being revealed would cause all sorts of miracles to happen. Now, we've seen the road not taken where the Stargate program was revealed to the world only when a super, super threat was imminent. And it caused mass chaos, mm -hmm. massive chaos. It turned the world upside down. That's part of Heather's question. If we were to reveal the Stargate program to the world, would it be better if it was under extreme circumstances where the government's hand was kind of forced by this sort of an imminent attack? Or would you do it kind of during peacetime where you could go out and plan it and strategize and then make this announcement you have five or six ships flying around up there fully staffed with crew there's no way that this thing is still a secret man i don't i don't believe that when another ship comes off the assembly line i find myself harder and harder <laughs> believing that this thing is still a secret i mean come on <laughs> thousands of people in the service any one of which could spill the beans. You're assuming that one of these guys don't have their wife and child kidnapped and held at gunpoint and ordered to explain everything lest they be shot. You, know, you never have a situation like that. You, you never hear of them in the Stargate universe because they would do it. I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Robert. Uh, as he said, he's currently deployed in Kuwait. I think that is so awesome that he is able to listen to our podcast, that, that he has the faculty to be able to do that and still serve our country. He's, he's over there putting his life and, and a number of people who listen to this podcast are out abroad putting their life on the line so that I can fulfill my dream here at home while he puts his life on hold over there. So I just really thank all of the uh, people in not just the United States Armed Services, but all those and all the free nations of the world who, who put their lives on the line for, for all of us to, um, to pursue our dreams while they protect us. Yeah, absolutely. As the son of a Vietnam vet, I salute you. Steve Murray writes, Do you believe the characters in Stargate Atlantis were finally starting to click together? Like Rodney and Shepard, for instance. From a character development perspective, I believe the writers were finally delivering character-based moments that I craved since the days of SG-1. And we talked about this a little bit last week. thought we talked a lot about this, but go ahead. <laughs> I think uh, that we were starting to get moments uh, like, like Rodney and Shepard in the Shrine, but we were still missing episodes. Uh, and again, I think it took a little bit longer, and it, it needed a little bit more deliberate attention. I think, David, the word you used last week was it was forced. By the time season five came around and had a great Rodney Shepard, I love you, I love you too, man, moment, you know. Yay, finally, season five. You had moments like that for Jack and Daniel and Need. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, and they were... And Serpent's Lair. It, that's right. In the earlier years, there was there was no aversion to the two of them giving each other hugs in a brother-to-brother -brother kind of way. And it seems to some extent that the, as the show went on and the writing continued, it felt a little bit homophobic. 
let's not have the guys patting each other or anything like that. Let's keep them literally at, at arm's length. Where Jack was a little more standoffish. He was. He really was. Then versus like the, the, the moment that I'm talking about at the end of the Serpent's Lair was when he finds out Daniel's alive and gives him a hug and calls him Space Monkey. That was a great scene. You just never saw it after a few years. A real shame. I thought that was a touch that was lost. And hopefully in universe, characters, men or women, won't be afraid after they get to know each other to get buddy-buddy physical with one another. I myself am a very tactile person. I don't like to to get to know people online because I like to get to know someone by their voice and by looking in their eyes. I'm a big hugger. I love hugging people. Um, So that is something that I personally connect with. That's how I say hello. Hi, Darren and David and all at GateWorld. It's Shirt and Tie here again in Tipperary in Ireland. With regard to your listener question and the open line night, my question is in three parts. Silly question, speculative question, and fantasy question. Silly question first. In the episode Prodigal, Atlanta Season 5, as Michael tries to coax Taylor from her hiding place, she implores him to shut off the autodestruct as a sign of good faith. It was established in Quarantine, Season 4, that the autodestruct siren has a mute button, as shown by Chuck. Why didn't Michael just hit mute and pretend it was deactivated? Michael was apparently familiar enough with the base controls that he could do a whole heck of a lot, like set the self-destruct, but apparently could not find that button. I think he wanted to continually remind them that uh, the base was self-destructing. You turn off the alarm, it's easy to forget that your mm. death is imminent. Mm. So I appreciate that he did that, even though it was a little annoying. I, th- I, think, I think it was a very potent... Taunting them a little bit? Yeah, exactly. This thing is not being shut off, because if That's you don't idea. hear it anymore, you might think that it was shut off. Yeah, I like that. Speculative question next. In your opinion, guys, if Atlantis had been the first incarnation of the Stargate franchise in television form, do you think it would have survived beyond a season five and perhaps lasted eight, nine, or even ten seasons? I think the the roundabout question that he could be asking here, too, is would it have succeeded without SG-1? Maybe, but I don't think it would have gone on for five years. Yeah, I agree. Showtime has sort of different rules uh, because it's a subscription channel. It doesn't follow ratings nearly as much in terms of whether or not to renew its shows. So we know that SG-1 had two years right from the beginning, and then either very soon after it went into production or after it premiered, I don't recall which, uh, they got another two years. So they had a Mm four-year commitment. So let's say all things being equal, Atlantis could have potentially started with the same four-year commitment. I think that after running for four years, it it probably could have gotten another uh, and gone for five, which is what SG-1 did on Showtime. So the real question for me would be, would Sci-Fi Channel have wanted to pick it up? after five years and thinking about where sci-fi was at that point in its history looking for a hit show i gotta say yeah it probably would have picked it up Uh, but would it have gone for 10 years i i really don't think so not having a crystal ball i think that atlantis really would have had to pick up its game a bit in order to run for 10 years Mm because nobody thought sg1 was going to go for seven years even after it moved to sci-fi. And finally, the fantasy question. Thinking of both SG-1 and Atlantis, name your dream team of six rather than four, giving us the ultimate Stargate team ready to battle anybody or right any wrong. And a big hello to all on Gateworld from Paul here in a very wet Tipperary. So for my team leader, I'm going to go with uh, Kershaw from the Sentinel, uh, played by the great Christina Cox. Uh, for one of my soldiers, I would have to have young Jack O'Neill. For the archaeologist, I would have to take the gardener, uh, Daniel's girlfriend, uh, for a healer, I'd have to go with Morgan Le Fay and uh, Paul Davis, just because I think he's cool to have around, and because I'd like to learn much more about him. I think he could be a very interesting character. We'll probably nice. turn out to be gay, but hey. Well, 
There you go. I'm going to take Jack O'Neill and Carson Beckett as our as our medic, and my other lead is uh, going to be Sam Carter as the brains. Always one of my favorite characters. And then we need an archaeologist, so I'm going to steal your idea and take Sarah Gardner. Ah! Dee Goulded, of course, not Osiris anymore. Uh, and then I'm going to take Fran. And then I'm going to take Chloe, who was Jay Felger's lab assistant in Avenger 2.0, and I'm going to kill her off in the first episode. <laughs> and our last question for today is from Lithus Rose. What do you guys like best about the sci-fi genre? What drives you nuts about it? And how does the Stargate franchise exemplify these? I've been a fan of science fiction for as long as I can remember. I grew up in the 80s watching Star Trek reruns and syndication. You know, you name it, and it's probably on my DVD shelf right now. Until I was six years old, I was only allowed to watch Sesame Street, anything on on PBS, Contact, you know, anything like that, Mm -hmm. um, and Star Trek. So at birth, I was a commissioned Starfleet officer. (laughs) (laughs) So I I was infused with Star Trek growing up. There was no way that I couldn't like it. My parents uh, thought it was a little out of control when I found myself more interested in Star Trek than my studies. And now look where I'm working. Yeah, there you go. It's It's paid off. Showed you, Mom. Showed you, Mom. When I think about what I like best about the genre, I think immediately of the very end of SG-1's 200 and the lines that that Brad gave to Grell, the, Grell the robot. The robot. He basically quotes Isaac Asimov in, in talking mm-hmm. about how science fiction gives us the ability to talk about about our lives and our world uh, in another way and point us to a, a future. It's very human centered, very anthropocentric for me as a as a theology student. But but I love science fiction because it it looks to the future and and asks hard questions that you can't necessarily ask in in other forms of storytelling. This was the great thing about the original Star Trek in the 60s and network standards was it was it was asking questions too controversial. Too controversial the sometimes very thinly veiled questions, you know, the species that was half black, half white. Suddenly you can have a conversation about racism on on primetime television. There are doors that sci-fi viewers have access to rather than viewers of doctors and lawyers shows and things like Boston Legal as 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 good as those shows are there's just certain things that they can't approach that sci-fi shows can science fiction tends to be very optimistic in its view of the future and even when you've got sort of an apocalyptic version of the future it, it's still kind of about human beings coming together and creating something that's greater that's better creating something out of the ashes whether it's Terminator or, you know, name your favorite franchise. They're all variations on really a handful of fundamental themes, which are storytelling devices to to get to that point, you know, be it uh, genetic engineering or Mm -hmm. sexism. They all boil down to a handful of themes. And you use these very classic science fiction storytelling devices like time travel and parallel universes and body swapping and robots and and all these different sci-fi staples that we've gotten used to over the years. Uh, But science fiction has a way of using those stories and asking really interesting questions in really interesting ways. Questions about who are we as human beings and who are we going to become. And the young kids in the audience get wholesome, fun entertainment with a lot of bangs and a lot of flashes. And the teenagers in the audience, they get it. They get what's being said. 
And I think on its better days, at least, Stargate has all that in spades. Well, there's our first open line night on the Gate World podcast. Thanks to everybody for posting, for writing in, and for calling. Did we succeed? Did we fail? Did one of us succeed and the other one fail? Ah, shut up. Very interesting. (laughs) Here's this week's question for next week's podcast. What did you think of Stargate the movie the first time you saw it? Did you have any idea that it would lead to this major science fiction franchise and its involvement in your life? Next week, David and I are talking about Stargate the movie. So crack it open and stick it in your DVD player sometime between now and then. On February 17th, we'll finally get GateWorld Forum's Tammy Farrar back, and we'll talk about fan conventions. We promise to get Tammy back. Tammy will not get sick this time around. She will not come under foul weather and not be able to join us. Under orders. That's right. And on February 24th, we'll talk about the ideal universe, what we think Stargate Universe needs to do. To be ideal. Ideally. But what do we know? That's right. We're just a couple of fans. You know you say ancients, like I would say anxious? The ancients. The ancients? You, you sound like you spell it A-N-X-I-E-N-T-S. I've noticed that listening to myself on a few words. You, and you and Joe Flanagan pronounce Atlantis. I know. See, that's the one. I Every time I say it, I hear myself say it, and I think, that sounds like Joe Flanagan. Target Atlantis. I tried deliberately to force myself to say Atlantis. Atlantis. And I couldn't do it. And every time I say Atlantis, I hear Joe Flanagan. (laughs) Every time you say it, that's what I think of. I know. I am completely conscious of that, too. It's weird. (laughs) I'm surprised you never backtrack and say Stargate Atlantis. 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 Thanks for joining us for this very special podcast this week. David and I had fun. I don't know if anybody's going to have fun listening to us. <laughs> it's honest answer. We want to hear uh, your thoughts on the Stargate franchise and what's to come for Stargate Universe. Give us a call on the podcast hotline at area code 616-712-1647 or head over to GateWorld Forum and post on the podcast feedback thread. For links to everything we talked about today, head to GateWorld.net and look for the episode number 28 show notes. From GateWorld, this is Darren Sumner. No, you gotta bark loud. Perfect. (laughs) And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast. (laughs) 